Perinatal Stories Australia. Welcome to Perinatal Stories Australia. My name is Rebecca, and every episode we provide a listening ear to the lived experiences of mental illness during pregnancy and postpartum. I hope this podcast reduces stigma, informs listeners about support services available, and inspires those on their own healing journey. More importantly, I hope you can hear these stories and know you're not alone. Thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves. everyone, I'm joined today by Siobhan, who is the brilliant mind behind Science Minded, which I'm hoping she'll share a little bit about with us later on. But for now, she's here to share her motherhood journey with two babies, two very different experiences, I believe. And she's here to talk to us about anxiety, severe depression, and from what I understand, depressive psychosis. Yes. Hello. Hello, Rebecca. Um, Yes, I experienced all of those wonderful things. Um, So I'm Siobhan. I run Science Minded on Instagram, which was born out of the desperate need to activate my brain during my postpartum life, Um, introduction with my eldest to my postpartum experience. My background is academia. I studied psychology and child development through university and did my PhD in the early social experience of newborn infants and the dyadic relationship between them and their parents. Um, so I was, well, I was what I thought, very familiar and comfortable around babies. I'd worked with thousands of babies and been in the homes of lots of newly formed families. Um, so I felt really, really comfortable in that kind of space. And I've always loved children. I come from a big family myself, from the middle of five kids, lots of cousins running around. So that was always something that I wanted for myself. Um, I've got two little boys now, I guess, although one keeps telling me he's a big boy, three-year-old Timo and four-month-old Julian, who's almost asleep in my arms. Um, But yeah, so like Rebecca kind of alluded to, I had a rough beginning to this journey of motherhood we moved back from New Zealand I was working in New Zealand at the university one of the universities there and we moved back when I was 20 weeks pregnant Um, I had a really healthy pregnancy everything was very happy and pretty calm and then oh so see this is the tricky thing with sharing these stories right like there's so much detail and it's Mm. like I I don't have time and you don't have time to talk for 45 hours, uh, which is probably about as long as it would take. (laughs) (laughs) So it's about deciding which pieces to dig into. But I guess I'll just go with whatever's coming to mind at the moment because that's clearly Mm. what my brain wants to share. But, um, yeah, so I was pregnant and gave birth to my eldest in December 2019. Just before COVID. Exactly, <laughs> as, our, as our astute listeners will realise, is right before COVID. So I had a pretty intense birth. I now recognise it as traumatic. Um, before my second pregnancy, I would have said that I had a full-on birth, but I didn't view it as traumatic. I knew that my husband was traumatised by it, but I didn't think that I was. Basically, I went into labour on Christmas Eve and I was adamant that I would not have a baby born on, on Christmas Day if I could avoid it um, because I thought of all of the future birthday parties and like all kind, all of the, the consequences of that. 
And so they kept offering to induce me and I kept saying no, which, I mean, I had my reasons, but there are also uh, unintended consequences of that. And one of them was that my waters broke and then he was born 52 hours later. So I was in the birth space for a really long time. I wasn't in labor that whole time, but I was hopped up on adrenaline, obviously, because I was excited to meet my baby. Um, and so I had no sleep. By the time I started pushing, I was shattered and I had nothing left to give. And then he came out. And as I've talked about this, with, so he's three now, and we talk about it a lot because it's informed a big part of our lives together. And he will tell anyone who will listen that I was born through my mummy's vagina, but I got stuck, which is exactly what happened. His shoulders got stuck. I saw the very seasoned midwife who'd been working, delivering babies for 30 plus years. I saw her face absolutely drop. And I remember thinking, oh, shit, this is bad. Um, she slammed on the red button. 15 people ran into the room and I dissociated. I um, kind of remember having the thought, oh, this is really bad. This is really, really bad. It's okay. There are people here. And then I just did it like I left my body. Um, and then I don't really know when I came back, but it was a lot. That's kind of what we started on. And then I had um, my little boy who had gastroesophageal reflux disease. So he was in a lot of pain for a really long time. And we were new parents trying to figure out why this baby screamed all damn day and all, all night. We have a family history of reflux, so we did have a lot of support and resources and a wonderful GP. So we got him on some medication that helped. But it, yeah, it was just a really, really rough start. And then when he was 12 weeks old, COVID hit. So let's add some gasoline to that fire. Everyone was terrified. And like, we obviously are kind of not immune, but kind of used to the idea of COVID now. But we forget that in the early days, you're just watching TV all day and the death counts. And we were all just mm. petrified and no one had any idea what was happening. And it's not good for a, a mum to be sitting on a couch holding a newborn, watching the world crumble. Hmm. So when Tima was about four months old, I started to struggle a bit more. I've, I've had mental health issues my whole life and I was on um, medication throughout my pregnancy, both pregnancies. And around four months, we went to the GP and kind of talked about how I was struggling a bit. So we upped my dose, which was good. Can I just ask, yeah, when you say struggling, are we leaning more towards anxiety or depression at this point? Or a bit of both? Or? A bit of both. <laughs> I think the anxiety was the more obvious one um I was very black and like lots of black and white thinking lots of trying to control things I to be honest I truly I recognized it as problematic but I truly didn't like a lot of this understanding is through in hindsight and through like later processing yeah. which is how a lot of these things go right but yeah. I think about the fact like I was so fixated on composting like we had to compost. We couldn't possibly throw anything that could be composted in the bin. I was really, really fixated on recycling correctly. And the thing is like none of, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pro composting and recycling, but when you're in the midst of a really difficult entry to parenthood, um, you can let some of these things go. But I was not in the brains fest to do that at the time. And I had a lot of things like that. Um, like we had to use cloth nappies and I would not use disposables under any circumstances because it's, you're exactly right. It's what I could control. Um, and I had to control mm. something because everything else was so 
felt so uncontrollable. Yeah. Oh, and I should also say because Timo was in so much pain and he had like he had this cry. I, I describe it as the screwdriver to the brain cry. It's the kind of cry that just causes your brain to short circuit and that while that cry is happening, you can't, your brain can't process thoughts. Mm. And he even, even as a toddler, he still has that. And like, that's just a part of who he is. But it's really challenging when you hear this blood curdling scream and it's because he stubbed his toe. And that's real for him. So I'm not to minimize his experience, but I'm, I come running up thinking I'm going to come to a scene of blood and gore. And it's, oh, I really hurt my toe, mummy. It's like, okay, cool. My heart explode out of my chest, but no problem. Oh, that's not a knee problem. I'll have to work through. It's like my amygdala is firing, but no worries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly right. Yeah. So my amygdala was just constantly on fire, um, and that's not healthy or sustainable. And because he was in pain, he didn't sleep. Um, and I also tend to make wakeful babies, so it was just it was really rough. And then six months, and like everyone kept telling me. And they, it was all coming from a good place. It'll get better. It'll get better. Mm. And a lot of that was them trying, them hoping it would get better. But anyway, so it was this for many months. And then when Timo was about eight months old, I remember I was bouncing him on the yoga ball because that's where we lived. And I remember I was listening to a podcast. I don't remember which one. And it was talking about your village and how you have to activate your village. And I remember like screaming inside my head thinking I don't have a village I have a village but I can't get to them because of COVID like I and that was a that was hugely painful for me because we moved home from overseas to be close to family and then we couldn't use our supports and then I yeah I was screaming this thought in my head and then I thought fuck this I do have one I'm going to them I need help so I packed a bag and and this is all my poor husband's working in the other room, working from home. I packed a bag, said I'm going to my mum's and left. Um, he had no context. He had no information about any of this um, because we had no time to talk because we were both just operating on no sleep and pure adrenaline and anxiety. I left the house. Uh, his wife and his baby left the house and he didn't know what was happening. Um, I turn up to my parents just desperate and they were wonderful. They held me and the baby and they made me go to sleep. But but at this stage, I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't sleep. Anytime that there was the opportunity to sleep, my brain was so, was vibrating. Like I, and my body, Mm -hmm. I couldn't, I couldn't rest even when it was technically available. And so by the time I turned up to my parents' house, he'd been waking every half hour to every hour for two months. So I'm severely sleep deprived. I'm on months long, intense anxiety. And it was just, anyway, so my parents took him. They said, go home, sleep. We'll, we'll, we'll keep him for, for a day. Just we'll keep him tonight. And I said, oh, I was breastfeeding. And I said, what are you going to do? And mum was like, he's big enough. He will manage. We'll feed him water if we need to. Like, because she, she was terrified for me, obviously. Um, I remember leaving and feeling like my arms had been cut off like it was and I can still imagine and remember the pain of leaving him behind and I picked him up the next morning and he was so happy so I've got a photo of him we've got this huge smile on his face he had a wonderful time (laughs) so that's good (laughs) it was torture for me 
Were you able to sleep? I was actually. I think um, I was so exhausted. Um, nighttime yeah. sleep was a little bit better. <laughs> Day sleep was impossible, but things got a uh, no. Things didn't get better. They stayed bad. Um, but the things really shifted when I was realizing that. So I'd, I've always had intrusive thoughts my whole life. I'm very familiar with them. I previously, before my postpartum experience, I wasn't distressed by them. I was just that's just how my brain works and it's just that's fine um, you noticed them. exact correct yeah and then during postpartum they started to become aggressive and very visual which was really confronting for me because I'm not a very visual person um so to be flashed these like intense visuals I found really disconcerting and then I was thinking about my psychosis the other day and I was remembering like I would just hear voices they weren't saying anything and they weren't malicious, but I would just start to notice, and I'd forgotten about this entirely, like at this stage with this sleep deprivation and this acute and both acute and chronic mental health and like mental illness, I just was very aware that I was experiencing things that didn't exist. I was seeing things that didn't exist. I was hearing things that didn't exist. I knew that they didn't, but I, but they felt just as real. Um, so it wasn't my imagination. It wasn't like I knew that my perceptions were severely distorted. Yeah. And I think I'll just jump in here if I can. Correct me if I'm wrong. I obviously have not lived this experience. But from what I know, um, this type of psychosis that you experience in addition to a mood disorder, let's say depression, mm -hmm. is not the same psychosis that we would expect someone like with postpartum psychosis to have, which is a schizoaffective disorder. Because postpartum psychosis or schizoaffective disorders in general doesn't come with the mood disorder component. This is the, from what I understand. Anyway, whereas what you're going through is a symptom of a mood disorder. Yeah. They, for some reason, they are a bit different yeah. in the DSM, DSM-5, I should say. Mm. So it in itself isn't the mental illness. It is a symptom of yeah. the mental illness. And I don't know if that means slightly different treatment either, but for, again, from what I understand, it includes the delusions and hallucinations in the same way that postpartum psychosis mm. may have. Yeah, I was never diagnosed with postpartum psychosis, but I was experiencing psychotic um, symptoms, and that wasn't the key feature of my um, of my illness. It was, and it was it was an extra fun flavor that was added along. Yeah. Um, yes. But yeah, it was kind of, for me anyway, in my experience of it, it was more an, um, what's the word, like an example that this is getting, this is getting dialed up a notch rather than, mm. than the key um, or like the focus of my yeah. um, concerns. But the thing that really tipped the scales where my husband, my family and, and me all decided that, okay, we need to, we need to do something was that I was starting, I not starting, I was suicidal. Um, I was, and I have, um, I've had suicidal ideation and I've been in that headspace before. This time was the scariest for me. I, with previous, um, suicidal ideation and thoughts of suicide, I was quite confident that I was just experiencing quite severe mental illness and that I wouldn't act on it. This time... I didn't think I would. I really hoped I wouldn't, but I was scared. I was so scared and I'd never, I'd never been in that space before. And I felt that way for a few 
being properly scared. I felt that way for a few days before I even had the courage to tell my husband, which was really telling because we have a very open, um, transparent relationship. We've been together for almost 20 years, so we know each other really, really well. And we've seen each other both through mental illness and like um, depressive episodes. We've both experienced that before. But this time was, yeah, terrifying to bring it to him. And I remember very clearly we were on the balcony um, and I said to him, I said, you need to hide the knives and he said, what, why? And I said, I just can't stop thinking about them and I'm scared I'm going to use them. And he, I think this was, the, this was the first time I'd told him about it. And he's like, we need to do something. We need to call your mum. So we did that and we saw my doctor the very next day. Again, I knew it was serious, but seeing my GP, who's been a family friend for 20 years, um, the look on her face of pure terror and she's a very calm together woman she yeah that was really confronting for me and we've she's still my GP and we've talked about it a lot and she has since said to me she said it was I've never seen you like that you couldn't form sentences and it's funny in hindsight I remember thinking that I was making perfect sense um I remember trying really hard to keep it together to explain what was going on but she said, yeah, she's like, you were a shell. There was, there was nothing going on. So at that stage, she activated my support system. I should say my mum and mother-in-law were both really worried and had been trying to intervene for weeks. And I'd just been saying, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Um, so basically I was, put on, I was put on suicide watch. So I wasn't to be left alone um, either by myself or with the baby for three weeks. I was put on bed rest. I wasn't allowed to do night duty and we had family take over for three weeks, every night for three weeks and then I think another few months of someone there most nights. And my doctor has since said that if she hadn't known the family so well, I would have been admitted straight to the hospital. Um, it was just that she knew that the support was there and that this was a better option. But, yeah, that's the, that's the kind of the crux of my experience. And how does that make you feel thinking about it now or saying it out loud, if I can ask? Yeah, of course. Um, I've talked about it a lot. It's still very painful, of course. Um, but I think I'm removed enough from it now that I just have so much compassion and sadness and grief that that yeah. was my experience. Um, mm. Sitting here holding another baby, is it's actually really wonderful and joyful because I I was afraid that this would never happen. Yeah. Um, I, like I said, I come from a big family. I've always wanted multiple children. And after our first experience, I was too scared to hope for it, even though it's what I wanted. Um, my husband was yeah. very adamant that he would never, ever have another child because why would, why would we do that? And, yeah, the intervening two years was a lot of therapy, um, a mm. lot of crying, a lot of exercise, really actually exercise has been hugely healing for me. Um, meditation movement, my therapist calls it. Um, mm. But, yeah, no, it's it's a lot. And it's also, I think, strange to think that this is my story and will always be a part of me, I think, and it shapes everything in my life in lots of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I find it very, very relatable, if mm, I can absolutely. say that. You know, when he said you went to your husband needing to hide the knives, mm. 
I was doing the same. If I saw scissors on the counter, I had to hide them in the drawers Mm -hmm. underneath tea towels. And whenever I was in the kitchen, I had to have my back towards the knives just in case because I thought Mm -hmm. if I see them, what if? Yep. It's a horrible, horrible, distressing feeling Mm -hmm. and I'm sorry that you went through it. Mm, and likewise. when you said as well that that is your story, I I say it all the time that that is not the story I would have written for myself, no. especially as a new mum. Yeah. So, yeah, my heart resonates a lot with what you're saying. Yeah, no, I'm getting chills just hearing you, hearing your story because I, exactly I relate to these ideas. And I think one thing that I struggled with and it took a long time to get back was being able to trust myself. Mm. I've talked with a few people about this, but mental illness is a real mind men, mind meld because it's your brain you can't trust. Mm. And it's very tricky to be able to go through life experiencing things and have to constantly check in with others because you don't know what's you and what's not you and what can be trusted and what can't be completely that that break in trust when you have mental ill health you your body your mind it doesn't feel safe anymore exactly and to regain that sense of safety that sense of trust in yourself is not a small thing Mm -hmm. at all yeah 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 and it's tricky because in I'm a strong capable independent bloody woman and to have those identities they I mean they didn't crumble but it felt like they did it felt like it, it was really really hard um and it's something mm. that I think we're doing a lot better but something my husband really really struggled with because that's the woman he knew and loved and he struggled so hard with me needing to what he saw as defer to him because that's not what he signed up for and that's not that's not the relationship dynamic he wanted and he felt a lot of pressure to be in that situation yeah. and we had to do a lot of work to to come back to our our new normal and I had to do a lot of work to trust myself and mm. trust myself in the context of that relationship but it sucks it's it fucking sucks yeah. for lack of a better word it, does. it fucking sucks and I didn't go through, as you were saying, 10 months Mm. of this. Mm. I was admitted a week postpartum. Things had gotten that bad that quickly. But in that week and even in subsequent weeks and months, my husband was both mum and dad. I did not trust myself as a mum. I did not trust myself around my baby. I did not think I was capable of looking after my baby. And I thought that anything I would do would be wrong. So it would be better off that my baby was with my husband. Mm -hmm. And the impact that that has on a relationship, it's not something that we could just brush over. Yeah, yeah. I remember one of our biggest fights after this period was I must have been, so Timo must have been about 15 months old. So I started, I kind of started to see the light. I, I remember the, the point exactly. I was on a run. I was listening to a podcast, Honest as a Mother by Amanda Gurman, who is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And there was something, I can't remember the guest, but I can hear her voice in my head. And she was saying something and I remember, and I think she was talking about her kind of recovery of this and her healing. And I remember having this little thought of, I think I'm getting better. And I burst into tears and I'm running around this oval with all these dogs and, and pet owners. And um, it was, and I'm just 
trying because I start, I was starting to feel better and I was like this little pinprick of hope that it might not always be like this. Um, yeah. And then as I started to get a little bit better, I <laughs> brought to my husband, I'm like, maybe we can have another kid. And he, my logic was I can get better and therefore in the future there's an option. Yeah. So this, this hope and this dream that I thought had died, I now felt hadn't died. So I brought it to him because I share everything with him, right? He was furious. He mm. was so angry because he, in his mind, he said, You've, you're just getting better. How and why would you do this to us again? Why aren't you thinking about me? And he, I think as well, he'd just started, as I was slowly starting to get better, he finally felt safe enough to crumble. So yeah. he started, like you said, he was mum and dad. He was everything. He was holding the weight of our family and what felt mm. like of the world. And as I was slowly starting to take back those responsibilities and share some of that load, he started to ex like to have his own postpartum depression yeah. um, experience. So he was really, really struggling. And it was, uh, it was like this grenade that I was said, okay, let's do it again. That kind of marked a period where we really struggled because I didn't have, at the time, I didn't have the the bigger picture of what was happening. I was just kind of focused on what I wanted, what I thought I wanted. And I didn't know what he was going through because he wasn't, he didn't know what he was going through. We were all just in it. And that's when we started to really struggle in our relationship and we like I said, we'd been together for we've been together for almost twenty years, and that was the first time that we had some serious conversations about maybe this isn't going to work. Like we're just both crying, talking about how the hell did we come to this? We were we're unbreakable. So to come to that realization that maybe we're not as, and it's not about it's not about the fact that we're not strong. It's just that this kind of stuff. You're human. <laughs> how 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 could we be? It's outrageous, right? We're human and, and to experience such stress and such trauma is not sustainable. So that kind of started some real intensity. We had to have some really serious conversations about the fact that he didn't think he he could do it again and that it was really important to me. And we had some of those we, we were just really honest about what it what it might mean to have only one child, what it might mean to have more. Um, what's the dynamic because you can't have you can't do it half half like you you have to come to a decision he said to me one day I'm worried that if we are done then you will resent me forever mm. and I had to be really honest and say I really hope that's not the case I'd like to think we would come to that decision together but I can't say it's not true because that's not my story that's not the story I saw for myself. And I remember saying to him and meaning it that if I knew we were only ever going to have one child, I think I would prefer to have none. And that's nothing to do with my child. That's nothing to do with Timo. No. That's got everything to do with the kind of life I had envisioned. Um, and I would never, ever send Timo back. C couldn't if I tried. I wanted to during my <laughs> during when I was in the depths of my illness. We were both so struggling so much. I remember we both like were Googling how, what do you do? How do you get out of this? And we figured that we weren't bad enough for child protection services to take the baby away. We knew that even if that happened, they would give the baby to one of our parents and that doesn't solve our problem. <laughs> so 
like it's just these places that your mind goes to, right? And it's indicative of how trapped we felt. Mm. But things did start to get easier and better. And if I can ask, yeah, sorry, before we continue the story, what do you think helped things get better? Yeah. You know, you'd said you'd been on medication pre-pregnancy and during pregnancy. You said lots of therapy. Can we talk a bit more about of course. those yeah, things? Yeah. Like at that 10-month mark, like what yeah. was the turning point after the suicide watch yes. or during? So um, we, so at that GP appointment, um, she upped my med dose massively. I think I went from... 50 milligrams to 250 or something it was the kind of where she has to make the call to the federal department to release the amount of yeah it was one of one of those ones and I it actually I was really grateful for it the massive increase meant that I was a zombie I was so fluffy in the head with this increase of medication um I, that was not my GP's intention like she had her own pharmacological reasons I don't know what they are because I am not trained in such a way but I was actually just in a real haze which I kind of liked because it was relief from the intense anxiety that I was feeling and then I, I tried to start therapy straight away but it was COVID and there were no spaces I took about three or four months before I could get in to see anyone um I was seeing my GP weekly and also my husband was on the phone with her every other day. And one thing that I am eternally grateful for is that after, so I went to the appointment with my mum because my husband was in a really intense work period um, and he, he, he could have come but he knew that my mum was there and so um, anyway. But as soon as we left the appointment, my doctor called him to check that he was okay. Um, and to see how he was going, which is just perfect and beautiful and exactly what should be done. I was about to say, your GP sounds wonderful. She's the best. Um, and, yeah, and so I did end up seeing a therapist, but massive um, increase in the drugs to, to keep me alive, which was really helpful. But running is the thing that actually, like starting trail running and having a really regular exercise routine was, for me, I, what I felt like got me out of it and I didn't start that straight away um I probably started that when Timo was about 18 months old in earnest I would do it every now but I started to be really serious about it and was that on your own or with Timo no it was on my own Timo wasn't with me but it was at my husband's suggestion because that's what he did and it was it, it's it's tricky because I remember when he started to really experience his own um, mental ill health he would go for runs and I was so angry because he would leave and I was at home with a baby and I remember thinking you don't get to run we don't get to do things and he was doing it out of necessity which I did not realize at the time for him it was his only outlet which I later came to appreciate and felt terribly guilty <laughs> for being so angry about but it was that was true to my experience at the time um, and then through his, we started running together as a way to reconnect as a couple. While Timo was in daycare, we'd go for runs during the day. And then I started to really enjoy it and find a lot of those benefits, both physical and largely mental. And then I'd start going by myself. And I continued that until I got pregnant because running when you feel like you need to throw up every two seconds <laughs> is not fun. But that is on the agenda. And I've started to get back into it recently. 
And I guess that brings us to the decision to have. Oh, sorry, you were going to talk about the therapy. Yeah, so I got in, um, I had maybe three sessions and they were helpful, but they weren't nearly as helpful as I wanted them to be. And I've come to, uh, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's the right conclusion, but the conclusion that works for me is I think that a lot of my trauma is really like body-based and I don't know if you've mm. read the book by Bessel van der Kirk, The Body Keeps the Score, but that resonated so powerfully with me, this idea that um, in the West we're very attached to these top-down processes and we really prioritise thoughts over feelings and we really emphasise the fact that thoughts inform feelings, and they do. That's not to minimise the fact that that does exist, but that it works the other way too, that um, yeah. what our how our bodies experience safety or the lack of it really helps to inform our responses. So I think for me, I and I think that's part of why running was so beneficial for me is because it was like a somatic physiological response to what feels like for me a very sensory-based difficulties. And I've, I have had slash have PTSD from Timo's experience because we lived on a really busy road when he was a baby and the cars and motorbikes and emergency vehicles would go past and because he was in pain all the time, he'd sleep so lightly, the little sleep he did get, and then a motorbike would go past and it would wake him up and he would scream and then it would be this intense feedback loop. But, yeah, really... The things that helped, really identifying my experiences as traumatic, recognising the body-based kind of experience, like, like the sensory element of it, and then the psychologist was helpful. And like, it feels it feels um, disingenuous because my background is in psychology. <laughs> so um, I, I'm still coming to terms with this idea that I'm not finding conventional psychology as helpful as I expected to because I've just finished up my fourth session with my new therapist and I'm not getting the I'm not getting what I had hoped out of it either. So I'm on the search for another one. Um, having said that, some of the therapy that I found the most beneficial was with an OT mental health therapist. So yeah, occupational therapist who specialises in mental health. So it really ties in that kind of sensory aspect, actually. And that's that's the only therapist I got for free through the hospital, <laughs> which is a bit ironic. So I'm glad that worked out. Exactly. Yeah. So. My hospital, when I was referred to them being pregnant with my now four-month-old, they identified, well, I told them I had birth trauma and then they allocated me to a special unit and asked me if I wanted to see an OT. It's incredible. I know, and she was the best. It was really helpful. Yeah, and so leading to that decision, I guess, Mm. to have baby number two, yeah, talk me through that. And you said that there was a lot of therapy involved getting to that, I guess, for both you and your husband. Yeah, so my husband didn't, he doesn't do therapy, as he tells me. He's like, I run, that's my therapy, which is, that's valid. Um, so we've never done couples therapy, but we do talk a lot. And he's very good at sharing his feelings with me. Um, the irony, which I've always find, um, is that when he comes to a decision, it's very, it takes a long time to get there. And it's like, no, 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 no. And then it's yes. That's how, it's exactly how we got engaged. It's how we decided to have our first child. (laughs) And it's how we decided to have our second. Um, And I find it so infuriating, which is just how he makes decisions. Your husband sounds like my husband. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't understand because it's not how I make decisions at all. Because yeah, it's just no. And then one day 
something changes. And I'm in the background being like, oh, but um, what about the last six months of me talking through? And he's like, I don't talk through things. And I'm like, whatever. You're... But the, the irony is that he does. He's a beautiful paradox. And as he constantly reminds me, he's like, you, that's what you love about me. So you can't complain about it. I was like, I can and I will. Um, so we had, the thing is like, yeah, we had a lot of those conversations about what it would look like, how it might influence Timo because he is a more sensitive soul and he's a sensitive kid with a lot of the same sensory issues that I've got. So that's beautifully complicated for me as well. And yeah, after months and months and months of all these kinds of conversations, my husband just went, yeah, let's do it, which is tricky. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> how long have I been asking for this? But yeah, so then... We got pregnant pretty quickly, which was lucky, of course. This is kind of where the piece of the birth trauma comes back in, is that I didn't think I had birth trauma, and then I was pregnant, and I was confronted with the idea that I had to give birth again, and I just had weeks of panic attacks, and I was thinking to myself, oh, <laughs> turns out there's something there. And previously, well before we um, had decided to have another child, on one of our runs together, which is where we did a lot of our talking and a lot of our healing together, my husband said to me, would you consider a cesarean? Um, and that, in hindsight, I was quite dogmatic during my first pregnancy about how I would and wouldn't do things, very black and white, which probably helped set the stage for some of that thinking as well during my first postpartum. But I said, yeah, I think I would. And he said that actually that was one of the key pieces for him to even consider it, seeing that I was more flexible than I had been. And I think... A few people have asked, like, why and how has your second postpartum been more healing? And I think it's the idea that I chose to have an elective cesarean with my second son. And I think that was really a very needed piece in order for both of us, both my husband and I, to feel safe enough to even enter that space again. Um, so within, I found out that I was pregnant quite early. And I think, I think we found out when I was about four weeks. And by the time I was eight weeks along, we had decided that if we were going to if we were going to give birth to this baby, it was going to be via cesarean. That's the only way we could yeah. envisage feeling safe enough to do it. And did that decision help with the panic you were feeling? Absolutely. Yeah, they, as soon as I'd made that decision, they kind of went away. Um, and obviously I was, I had some nervousness and anxiety around of course. what would be a different experience. But, yeah, it, it really shifted things for me. Um, and then I had a birth debrief with B from Core and Flora Store. And it was really wonderful. Lots and lots of tears, but really healthy and helpful tears. And she really helped reframe lots of things for me. And yeah, that's where I really kind of, from that point, choosing to have the cesarean, that's when I started um, activating a whole bunch of my supports. So well before I got pregnant, I decided that if and when we did that, I would employ the services of my very good friend, Catherine from Mother Up. We met by Instagram and we realised that we lived close to each other, so we met up and clicked instantly. And now she's one of my very best friends. So, yeah, I hired her and we had several planning sessions which involved getting me as mentally um, healthy and strong as I could be. So I had monthly OT appointments through the hospital. I had psychology appointments. I had social worker appointments. I had exercise. I did everything. So a lot of those services I found through Catherine. So um, my social worker was via the White Cloud Foundation, which is a free mm -hmm. service that offers mental health support and dietitian support and something else, lots of practical and um, mental health support stuff to mums and dads. You can self-refer, like 
You don't need any. Yeah. They're awesome. They're absolutely awesome. And I found them very easy to work with. And actually since not, um, since deciding that my current psychologist is maybe not the best fit for me and while I try to find another one, I'm going to reach out to them as kind of my interim. Um, where, sorry, where was I up to in the story? Postpartum planning. Yes, so that was awesome. And um, I think having a plan, because the first time around our plan was we're capable people, we'll figure it out, uh, which if you have a really easy transition and a happy baby and things work well, that's a great plan. If you if you have any of those things not line up, it's a lot harder. And we had none of the things line up, so we really struggled. And the beauty of a plan is that it can change and adapt at any stage. But someone asked me recently, like, what have my plan changed? And <laughs> the tricky thing about me is I'm an absolute rebel without a cause. Uh, so even if I'm the person that makes the plan, I will go against it because how, don't tell me what to do. Um, so Catherine, knowing this about me, uh, instead of making a plan per se, we just my plan was just pages and pages of resources of if I feel this way, this is what I can do. If this happens, do this. Um, just lots of ideas, all of the ideas, all of the resources. Contingency plans. Exactly. That's exactly what it was, um, which was the best way for it to be for me because I wanted to do these things that I knew future me would battle against. So I had to protect against that. And it's been really good. Like there's a lot of resources that I haven't had to utilize, several that I have. But it, I think as well, it's having that plan and having Catherine as a sounding board to talk through the plan and hold me accountable and come up. She just had so many wonderful ideas that I hadn't even thought of, just really practical, useful things, as those who have listened to her um, episode would know. But that's what gave me a lot of confidence that this was possible. And were you doing those plans with your husband as well? Yeah. So he basically the way we tend to do things is because I'm a massive overthinker and like love to analyse minute details, I tend to like do all the things and then I bring my cohesive ideas and then he goes, oh, this is interesting and kind of we talk it through and then I go off and edit and then I bring it back and then it's like a that kind of process. And, yeah, lots of the bits were as well like providing him kind of giving the power, me giving the power to him rather than him taking it so that if you're worried about me, this is what you do. Like me me giving him an action plan because what he really didn't want was the pressure of having to step in. He needed me to hand him the keys. Um, so that was really helpful. But I think as well like having the plan really allowed me to talk through and sit down with all of like my key support people like my mom my mother-in-law my dad and be like this is the plan if you think something can be added if you think we can or should do things differently this is how we can talk about it and it just yeah created kind of a framework to talk through a lot of these things that can otherwise feel awkward but yeah and so this little one he um, was due for <laughs> and so I was so excited for an elective cesarean because I'd had friends who've had one and talk they talk about how it's so calm and like you just go into the hospital but of course that's not how things happened for us my waters broke exactly the same way with my eldest it was actually it was basically exactly the same except that we intervened at hour eight and had the cesarean yes and then the birth was quite lovely. So apparently technically it counts as an emergency, but it's like a non-emergency emergency. So we were just hanging out in the room and we kept getting pushed back because we were a non-emergency emergency. So the emergencies went ahead of us as they should. 
and that's why it took the eight hours um and i just kept leaking water everywhere which was <laughs> not glamorous but that's the name of the game we finally wheeled into theater and then as i got my spinal i had a, a terrible flashback and i burst into tears thankfully my husband was there he knew exactly what was happening um all of <laughs> despite it being in my notes that i have birth trauma um all of the staff just freaked out um and we're like what's is she okay is she in pain and he's like it's okay she's just having flashbacks like it's not good but there's you don't need to worry and I so I, so I should note I went through the public system so um I didn't have a pre-existing relationship with any of the obstetricians or surgeons or anything they were all wonderful but my husband was my real um wonderful person and then the main downside was that when he was born he had I can't remember what it's called there's a medical term but his lungs weren't happy and so he was put on oxygen and I really wanted skin to skin, which is what I was able to get with my eldest, but his breathing was not up to it. So he was whisked away. Um, your dad stayed with you. So that was good. But I didn't get to see you for 12 hours, which was really sad and really hard. I, I haven't invested. I mean, I guess it doesn't matter too much. It doesn't matter for me. Technically, it was NICU, I think, because I didn't have enough mm. beds in special care. I don't think his issues were severe enough to necessarily warrant it. Base, yeah, so when when I did go in to visit him, he had the oxygen tubes in and a little cannula in his tiny little hands. But it was actually really sweet. I was able to breastfeed him, which I wasn't sure I was going to be able to. And I was able to sing. He got a little bit upset. And the first time I held him, I sang him the songs that I would sing to his brother to go to sleep. And he instantly calmed down because he recognised them from when he was on the inside. So that was really lovely. Um, but it was... Lots of people have asked me about my experience of him being in NICU, how I managed it, but it was really actually fine for me emotionally. And I think a big part of that was that he was so strong and healthy. It's just that his breathing wasn't great. And when we'd walk in to the NICU, all the other babies looked so tiny and they looked, they didn't look well. Um, and their parents looked so crestfallen and sad. And then he was this giant hunk of a thing that was literally hulking out and ripping his tubes off and the nurse is going no 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 and taping them back on and he had his I think they put socks on his hands at one stage to try and stop him taking his tubes out um but he was he was perfectly happy and fine and I I remember actively like doing lots of kind of cognitive reframing about the fact that I I, I mean I was really sad that I was up on the ward without a baby in my room and that felt really weird <clears throat> but it did give me opportunity to rest so I just slept a lot and I watched Bridgerton so I just really enjoyed that and he was down there for about I think it was about 26 hours or something and the nurses down there were wonderful they kept saying come down as often as you like they would call me and let me know and they were really supportive of um, I felt really supported with because I'd expressed a bunch antenatally and mm -hmm. they were really good about that but they also didn't put any pressure on me so they gave him formula as well. And in my planning with Catherine, I decided that I wanted to do combination feeding. And Catherine can and will attest, and she told me about it, that she kept, despite me offering that as something I wanted, I kept pushing back against it because my little black and white thinking about, no, you have to exclusively breastfeeding kept coming back. But him needing formula in the hospital was actually a real blessing in disguise because someone else gave it to him. I didn't do it. And we started off that way. So it was easier for me to continue it. 
So what could have been very traumatic was actually quite fine and actually really helpful in many ways. But yeah, and then I think the biggest piece is he's a very happy baby, which, and it, one thing, I did a post about it a little while ago, a thing that I've struggled with really lots is people keep saying to me, oh, do you think he's happier because you're less anxious? It's like, no, I am less anxious because he is yeah. happier. And I hate that yeah. retreat. It's like, it's not on me. He's a happy baby. And so I'm not on edge because I'm not getting screamed at all day. And it's such a horrible thing to suggest to a mum who's anxious to say oh your baby's anxious because you're anxious yeah. and that is just heartbreaking uh-huh. and then like and as if she needs more to be worried about exactly and believe me she will worry about uh-huh. that she absolutely will start blaming herself uh-huh. yeah and she, yeah, she doesn't need an invitation she's already doing that yeah no it is it is terrible but thankful and like like I said my mum is bloody wonderful she's been really good so for context I'm one of five kids. Three of us had reflux as babies. So <laughs> love those genetics. And my brother had a very similar story to my eldest son. And so as horrible as it is, my mum and I had a lot of bonding over our terrible experiences. And it was really, really helpful that even through all of my pain, I knew that I, I always had her in my corner and she completely understood just how shit things were. And then also it's been really interesting to, um, because my brother is the second and he's the one older than me and there's four years between us. And I remember growing up, I'd always say, oh, why, why is there a big gap? And she's like, oh, you know, like she never, she never said. And then after I had my son, she said that that's why. So there's, yeah, there's just, it's been really eye-opening in the context of that relationship with my mum and my both my parents really yeah but yeah no Julian is a happy little baby he has reflux too um in the hospital we noticed it and we could smell like it's a very distinctive sour smell and we smelled it on his breath and we both were quite traumatized and I remember seeing the look on my husband's face um and I remember feeling the dread wash over me going no 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 we we can't do this again. But we left the hospital and he was on the kind of over-the-counter stuff that we could give him. And then at three weeks, our GP agreed oh. to give him the medication. And I was a bit worried that we were kind of like being hypervigilant, but then it's a weight-based medication. And so as he puts on weight, his reflux gets worse. So that has been validating in that he needs it. We just make babies with dodgy cuts, but they're cute. And this one's happy, which is very healing for both me and my husband. And so this postpartum, obviously I think we all know the answer, but in terms of your mental health, mm. I'm not going to say it's it's fine and everything's great yes. because that is unrealistic, mm-hmm. but worlds apart from that first experience. Worlds apart, absolutely worlds apart. And it's really weird and confronting and confusing. And I'm, I'm kind of at the stage, so he's four months old, I'm at the stage now where I'm starting to enjoy how different it is. For the first couple of months, I was just confused. Yeah. Like I'd put him down and he would be okay with that. And I'd just stare at him thinking, what? <laughs> and other times I'd um, I'd swaddle him and hold him in my arms and then he'd fall asleep. And my eldest would require hours of rocking on the ball. Like he would be exhausted, but he just couldn't convert it because he was in pain. And just, yeah, the, the difference was wild. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I In my phone, I've got so many photos of, that I would send of a sleeping baby going, he's asleep. What? He's asleep and he's not in my arms. What? So that was that has been the dominant emotion. Now I'm starting to enjoy it a bit more, but I, there's a lot of grief um, mm. for just how hard my first experience was. Because um, I think as well, like when it when that's all you know, the idea that it could be different 
doesn't really hold water. And then as well, like there's been a bit of anger um, of like, are you kidding me? It's this easy for other people? Like why? Why do they get that? And, of course, it's not that easy. Like who and there's no there's no answer to that question. It just happens how it happens. But, yeah, lots lots of conflicting and complicated feelings, but it has been better. I can imagine yeah. the, the conflicting, yeah. conflicting emotions and feelings and that grief as well, as you said. I know it's not the same as colic, yeah. but I'm aligning it to that experience, that, that sleep deprivation, your baby in pain, your amygdala on fire all day, every day. Mm-hmm. The impact that that has on someone's mental health yeah. is you almost can't put that into words, really. And I think, and like this is, I think, a shared experience with anyone who has several children who are different from one another, as most children are. Mm-hmm. That, like, the, the tool belt that you came to it with, lots of the things that you did the first time don't apply. And whether or not that's because you had an easier baby the first time and more difficult the second, or vice versa, like, it's, it's just quite confronting to, for it to be so different. In terms of this second postpartum, what were some of the strategies that you've used? Aside from, okay, you've got a quote-unquote easier baby. Mm -hmm. Aside from that, what do you think has actually been helpful this postpartum period to help your mental and emotional health? I know that one of my key challenges is I'm very easily um, overwhelmed by auditory stimuli. So the crying, and I think like specifically the pain cry is really challenging Mm. for me. So we, we hadn't dealt with this before because he is a happier baby because he's not in pain except two weeks ago he had a cough a bad cough and he had a sore throat and he had that cry the screwdriver to the head cry yep and I knew that I would struggle with that but experiencing it both me and my husband were quite shocked at how quickly I devolved into a puddle um Mm. and it was like truly like PTSD flashbacks I had four days so he was probably sick for about four days and I was a shell of a person I couldn't make decisions I couldn't function I was vibrating like I felt like my body was humming with anxiety was terrible um and then he was better and then I was fine like the the like light switch element of it was really intense and So I have now learned, I mean, I knew already, but that I have to be very, very vigilant about managing that. And I think um, what what I have been doing since is got those loop earplugs, you know, those um, noise dampening that, and I've got um, noise cancelling headphones, which I had before, but with Timo, but I couldn't bring myself to use them because I had in my head that it's almost like this masochistic kind of like, I'm his mother, I need to be here to experience this. Yeah. Whereas this time it's like, hell no. There's no I do not need to I don't need to be present for this. I will comfort you through, I will hold you, I will be there for you, but I do not need to put myself through additional pain. And it's just the real shift in thinking has been huge, which is good, obviously. Mm. Like and I think I've just got so much more compassion for myself. I'm not holding myself up to my own exacting standards. Um, I really, it's so funny as well because I, so Dr. Sophie Brock does a lot of stuff about the perfect mother myth and all of these ideas around like what it means to be a good mother. And I would have said that I didn't, that I didn't subscribe to that, but she describes it beautifully as that we all subscribe to these ideas, whether we want to or not, because it's the water that we're swimming in. Like you can't not when it's part of society and culture. Um, And even if you, which I did like reject the ideas 
it still is so deeply held and even subconsciously. Mm. And I think as well, like you just kind of learn to realise that you can't do it all and be it all and to give yourself a lot more grace. And a lot of, and I've spoken to my mum about this a lot because she's like, why didn't you just let me, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like I couldn't, I was holding on so tightly that if I let go, everything else would fall apart and I didn't have the mental space to even entertain an alternative reality. Um, White-knuckling it was all I could do because I had to hold on and that's what it felt like. That's exactly what it felt like. And I think when, when you ask what it, what has been helpful, and that's the thing, like I've had to force myself and practice asking for help even when I don't want it or I think I don't need it. I ask for help before I think I need it, um, which I hate. Every fibre of my being hates. But I think a big like it's not about me anymore and that's helpful for me to think like that I'm not doing this for me. It's got nothing to do with me. It's not about my ego. That if I don't make sure to ask for help before I need it, if I don't look after me, then my children suffer, which is like its own weird broken selflessness, but that I'm part of something bigger now and that I have to look out for them. And in doing that, that means that I have to put myself first because the ship goes down if the captain's not steering. Absolutely. And I mean, as much as I'd like to sit here and say, you're a human being, you deserve to do it for yourself. You should do it for you. You matter. You're doing it. And that's what matters. Yeah. And like, I feel like this is the interim step for me that I can do it at this stage. Mm. And then hopefully I can do it just for me. But I think like in terms of um, other things that have helped, just really practical things. So partly who knows what's the, the cause and effect of the situation, but Julian's not a very good feeder. He, um, it's not one of his strengths. He's got many strengths. It's not one of them. And the irony, and this kind of relates to the differences between children, feeding was something that Timo did so well. There were other things slash everything else he really struggled with, but feeding was his thing. And I feel like we've got the flip scenario. And I, <laughs> it's like, of course that's, but which is one of the reasons why bottle feeding has been so helpful. And I think he was two weeks old and he wasn't gaining weight. The GP suggested we do formula top-ups. And I think because I'd prepared the idea that we would do combination feeding and I'd planned to do it later, a bit later on, that wasn't confronting for me. I was like, okay, we've planned for this. Let's let's put that plan into motion. So, yeah, that was quite helpful. So there's just like really practical things like the formula feeding means that other people can help. And so I can, when I'm feeling really touched out and I just need lunch, I can pass the baby in a bottle and I don't feel bad about it because I need to eat. And so I'm not at that touched out, hungry, tired stage. And I'm, yeah, really prioritising my needs on a sensory level because I know that when I'm hungry, when I'm tired, when I'm overwhelmed, that that's when I'm not the best version of myself and that's when I struggle more. And then we've had other practical supports like having people over. Um, At least once a week I have someone to be here in the afternoon so that I can have a guaranteed nap. Um, Most days I get a nap and the fact that I can sleep is huge and obviously testament to that things are going well. Yeah, definitely. Not being able to sleep when you're presented with the opportunity to sleep is usually the biggest sign. Yes, and it's so, and it's like as well, it's so cruel and you feel that cruelty really deeply because, and then it turns into this, I need to sleep, and then this desperate cycle. Yeah. So if anyone's in that, I'm very sorry for you and I hope you're able to get a little bit of support. 
mm. in whatever way yeah. you need. And um, looking back, what do you wish you had the first time around or what do you wish had been different? So many things. Um, I talk about this a lot and I don't know. I think, and the thing is a lot of the support was there earlier than I took advantage of it. Um, I, I don't know if things could have been different. No cope. I would have opted for that. But I think lots of people in the world would have appreciated that if I could wear the magic wand and take COVID away. One one big thing is that because I, of my previous mental ill health experiences, we, my family and my support network, we were on, we were very much on the lookout for postnatal depression. We weren't mm. aware of postnatal anxiety in the same way, and mine manifested more that way. The mm. intense control, the lashing out, that really is how things showed up. And we didn't realise it was a problem until it was much more deeply seated. What would you tell your past self or what do you wish you could say to Siobhan from three years ago? I think I would just hold her. Yeah. I, like I say, I've got so much compassion and sadness for what I went through. There was, I was in so much pain. And I'm lucky, like I was very lucky I had people holding me, but I think the version of me that experienced and remembers that pain and knows what she was going through I think I would just put my just hold her and hug her and tell her it's going to be okay I think that's all I could do and I think that's that really sums up what we need yeah you know we don't necessarily need advice or anything we just need to be held where we're at yeah so I think that that is a nice message to end on and I hope you're as proud of yourself as I feel for you right now because of how you've gone through that experience and give yourself compassion for what you've gone through. Oh, thank you. I, I'm not the best at um, being proud of myself, but I do try. I'm trying to be better. I think it's just so important to speak to the truth of our experiences and, and not be ashamed or try to hide for fear of judgment because everyone's having a hard time in some capacity or another and the I've read, um, I, think, I think it's a Robert Frost poem, uh, but something about like the only way out is through. Um, apparently there's more to that quote and it's the only way out is through and the best way through is together, which I really love and speaks to the idea that connection is what makes humans so special, our social connections and our social bonds, and that's almost always the answer, that when we feel lost and alone and like we're the only one and we're broken, there's always someone else who feels that way. And obviously it's easier said than done to be open with the darkest, most vulnerable parts of ourself, but it's really the only way through. Thank you to all our listeners for holding space for today's story. If you like this episode, please leave a review and rating to help me bring you more amazing content. Join the conversation and be featured on the podcast by sharing your story through my website, perinatalstoriesaustralia.com. If these stories are a bit too much to listen to or to read right now, then come back another time. Protecting your mental health is the number one priority. As always, this podcast and its associated blog and social media accounts is not a substitute for therapy or for getting help. No medical advice is provided, only lived experiences. If any of this does resonate, though, please reach out to a medical professional. See you next time.